Augmented reveals the stories behind a new era of industrial operations where technology will restore the agility of frontline workers. In episode 24 of the podcast, the topic is Emerging Interfaces for Human Augmentation. Our guest is Patty Mays, professor at the MIT Media Lab. In this conversation, we talk about augmenting people instead of using or making smart machines. We discuss AI summers and AI winters, the parallels between AI and expert systems and why we didn't learn our lessons, enabling people to perform better through fluid, interactive, immersive, and wearable systems that are easy to use, and how the lab thinks about developing new form factors and much more. Augmented is a podcast for industry leaders and operators, hosted by futurist Trond Arne Unheim. Presented by Tulip.co, the frontline operations platform, and associated with MFG.works, the industrial upskilling community launched at the World Economic Forum. Each episode dives deep into a contemporary topic of concern across the industry and airs at 9 a.m. U.S. Eastern Time every Wednesday. Augmented, the Industry 4.0 podcast. Patty, how are you today? Hi, doing great. Thank you. Thanks for well, having me. Oh, sure. I'm very excited to have you. And in fact, I just feel like the audience should get to know you. Um, I know a lot of them do because you have become an innovator that uh, you know has a stage on, on TED. And obviously, a lot of people at MIT know you. Uh, but I wanted to just recognize that you, know, you were one of the early... PhDs in AI, right? 1987 mm-hmm. is not yeah. a time when, <laughs> is that the, what we call the second wave of AI? Right? It's certainly not the... Uh, the, the grandmother of AI. <laughs> yeah. You're not a recent convert to this topic, that's for sure. Yeah. So yes, I actually studied artificial intelligence long before it was um, uh, such a big deal or the big deal that it is right now. Um but actually, soon after my do, uh, of doing uh, uh, my PhD in AI, I became more and more interested in sort of a, a related problem, um, the problem of not artificial intelligence, but intelligence augmentation, or how can we make people more intelligent, more productive, uh, uh, support them in making better decisions. So soon after my PhD, I sort of veered more in that direction. Well, and that's what we will talk about because you have indeed been on the MIT faculty for 30 years exploring these topics in in various kind of bifurcations. And you have been the advisor to scores of startup Mm -hmm. founders also. And, you know, of course... People might think that goes with the territory at MIT, but the, the numbers are really still mm-hmm. staggering. And also the, the performance of some of those startups, right, including, mm-hmm. uh, you know, Tulip, which we'll, we'll talk about, uh, but also many, many other startups and many other innovation projects that don't, didn't quite mm-hmm. make it to startups, but they, mm-hmm. they still created uh, a lot of attention around the world for the promising demos or the the things they suggested about what the future of technology might look like. Mm-hmm. So I, I would like first to just <laughs> recognize that you've achieved 
I guess, the amazing feat of not just sort of innovating a lot yourself, but you are you must be an amazing innovation mentor. And you certainly have inspired a lot of people that I personally know mm-hmm. um, in AI and in human augmentation and beyond. And I wanted, first of all, just to see if I could have you reflect a little bit on your journey, which I imagine, well, first of all, it's a nice wordplay from Belgium to Boston. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so um, I came here after my PhD, actually, and, and was, uh, um, of course, wanted to be in the place in the world where uh, the most exciting research was going on in my area. Um, and so initially, I ended up at the AI lab, but um, I soon after actually uh, adopted or accepted a job at the media lab. And what uh, really attracted me there was that uh, the lab is very application-driven. We're very interested in um, really working towards things that can be deployed in the real world, that can make a difference in the real world. Um, That can be through for-profit startups, but sometimes that is actually in other ways by just freely giving away tools and technologies or maybe starting a not-for-profit uh, to really disseminate some uh, something and make something accessible to larger groups of people. So I've always been very attracted to that, uh, the practical aspect um, and trying to make a difference really with uh, the work that we do. And as a result, um, several uh, companies have been created out of uh, my research group. Was this something you set out to do, like, when you were in Belgium getting your degrees at the Freie University mm-hmm. in, in Brussels, were you thinking, I am going to go to America and become an innovator? Was that in your mind? <laughs> no, I think a lot of that sort of uh, happened accidentally, actually. And um, maybe, I mean, one reason I think why I'm interested in practical applications and real-world deployment is that I was never really interested in the technology for the sake of the technology. I'm not one of these people who gets really excited about purely just the technology, the algorithms and so on. I want to make my life easier and other people's lives easier. And that has always been what motivates me and and my work. Yeah. Yeah, and that gets us to kind of intelligence augmentation, right? Because mm-hmm. I, I guess in some sense, the Media Lab is all about that topic, right? To mm-hmm. some extent. And, and you know, I wanted to also address the fact that not only are you doing your, you know, the work in your lab, but I think at least for the last few years, you've had the academic responsibility across the lab and you have shepherded mm-hmm. the lab, arguably, you know, through one of its, uh, you know, more difficult times. Mm-hmm. So surely... You have also experienced, you know, innovation and and the tricky things that show up with innovation across a plethora of fields. Mm-hmm. But generally, you know, people at the Media Lab are are hired, I guess, because they think about application. What is it that that is so different when you? So let's just start with that. When you start with a human in mm-hmm. mind from the get go, mm-hmm. what is the difference that makes? Yeah, so I think um, indeed our philosophy is always to be, like I said, application driven. Um, And what that means is that we take a closer look at the ultimate um, target users and uh, their 
place or where they live or work um, and how the technology could make a difference there and could change things there. So rather than starting from the technology and trying to maybe optimize some algorithm that does X, we actually work closely with um, target users. Um, We really study sort of uh, their lives today to understand what the pain points are, what the opportunities are for technologies to make a difference and, and support them in being more effective, more productive. Um, yeah. But you have experienced both sort of AI summers and winters. Is mm-hmm. is one of the reasons that AI <laughs> tends to get into trouble that it, it always is very myopic about... Uh, the technology focus or are, or is it a more complicated reason why there are these summers and winters? Well, I think that that is indeed the primary um, problem. So yes, there have been several um, AI summers and winters. Probably a lot of your listeners um, are um, 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 young enough that they don't realize that there was another hype cycle for AI that happened sort of in the 80s and 90s. Um, with the uh, emergence of expert systems, so-called expert systems. These were not based on uh, machine learning and neural network uh, techniques, but instead were typically based on rule-based systems. But they were very sophisticated. They had uh, typically a lot of knowledge built in about a particular problem, like, say, making a certain diagnosis or, or doing some planning or uh, what have you. So th- these systems were um, in laboratory settings were very impressive and were uh, often outperforming experts at uh, doing some scheduling problem or planning problem or diagnosis or recognition problem. But what happened when they uh, were put into the workplace or when people try to integrate them uh, into the real world was that um, uh, they basically um, encountered all sorts of obstacles. One of the obstacles was uh, that people wouldn't necessarily trust the machine, uh, the the, the expert system. Uh, They didn't quite um, know how to work with it or where to fit it into their workflow. Uh, they weren't always able to get explanations for why the machine was making a certain decision. Um, it was very hard to correct or uh, the, the knowledge of the system and give it new information or to update its information if it wasn't correct. Uh, so there wasn't really a lot of transparency, a lot of uh, controllability, interpretability, and that ultimately was the downfall of expert systems. And so. Yeah, at that time, as well, just like now, there were many startups, millions of dollars pumped into all of this. Um, the conferences uh, and exhibits were, were extremely popular and all of that died down and we entered an AI winter where suddenly there was very little interest from uh, the real world businesses in AI. Um, now, of course, we are in another summer in another hype cycle. And I am actually very worried that we are making exactly the same mistakes because most of the AI systems that are being developed are being developed very much um, not in the context of where they ultimately 
will be used or not with the collaboration of the people who ultimately will use these tools. And so we will encounter exactly the same problems of trust and transparency and, and controllability and interpretability. So in my work, I've always been emphasizing a different approach. Um, and I like to not call it artificial intelligence, but rather uh, maybe augmented human or augmented intelligence or maybe human-centric AI uh, because our um, approach is one where we start out by studying what people are already doing in a certain work environment, whether that is uh, a manufacturing floor or a doctor in a hospital and so on. And we actually work together with them or think about how we can support the people that are there to do their work better, to be more effective uh, at their work. And uh, so it's a, a totally different way of looking at the problem. We try to optimize for the person and the technology together to perform better. Uh, we don't try to optimize for the algorithm or the system to become better without thinking about how that system will be integrated um, into a real life, uh, real world scenario. Well, this is super interesting. I want to go into a couple of examples of things mm -hmm. that you have done with your students and otherwise in a second. But first, why have we not learned collectively this lesson? I mean, what is it? I mean, is this mm -hmm. something you think is happening across the board with technology mm -hmm. or is it even just specific to this machine learning AI environment that we, is it, are we so tempted by the potential impact of the use cases that we just mm -hmm. get carried away into the algorithms depth and then forget the user or why mm -hmm. haven't people said this is not good enough? I think that it is actually a broader problem with, um, development of digital technologies, um, all of the technologies that we use today, whether it is maybe AI systems or um, or whether it is uh, social networking um, uh, services and so on, they mostly have been designed and built by engineers, um, by teams that just consist of engineers and not people that come from very different backgrounds, for example, um, uh, more social humanities backgrounds, etc. Uh, one of the reasons that I was very excited to join the Media Lab as opposed to a computer science department is that it is very interdisciplinary and we really recognize uh, and, and try to uh, uh, sort of emphasize that uh, interdisciplinarity uh, is extremely important in uh, innovation in creating things that ultimately um, will be successful and, and will be able to make a, a positive difference, basically, and a positive impact. So that means involving not just engineers, but also designers, uh, people who can really think about uh, making things fluent, seamless, about how it integrates into uh, workflow and so on, but also um, uh, people from humanities backgrounds uh, and uh, social scientists and so on. So I think it's, it's important to have that broader perspective um, 
to make uh, or to create uh, technologies that ultimately uh, are desirable and, and ultimately really improve our lives. But Patty, take me inside of a, a week in, in the Media Lab, because when you describe it this way, it sounds almost so intuitive and simple that I'm sort of wondering why people need to travel to the Media Lab to learn this. Because if if you know if it was as simple to just hire a team with the different skills and it will happen, there surely is some other type of magic ingredient. What what does a week look like in your lab? How do you draw out the kind of creative energy? Maybe it's helpful if you take Arnav Kapoor's alter ego, which most mm-hmm. people know as just a mm-hmm. video that went viral. And they're like mm-hmm. imagining the future of computing with just this device mm-hmm. where he's not even speaking, but he's kind of just mm-hmm. basically controlling one, it would seem, the computer with his jaw. Mm-hmm. Now, fantastic video. How does something like this come out of your lab? Yeah. So we are a very open laboratory. So in, in addition to um, well attracting creative uh, entrepreneurial people and uh, really sort of cultivating a very interdisciplinary team, um, we engage a lot in conversations, in discussions with others, with the outside world, which is actually pretty where still for people in universities. Um, so, for example, we have um, member companies. We have a consortium of companies that fund the Media Lab. And they, pre-COVID at least, uh, come and visit uh, on a daily basis. Every day we have at least uh, uh, 10 different uh uh, uh, companies visiting to see the work, to engage in discussions, to give us feedback. They don't direct the work, but they can be critical. They can see opportunities for where to take it and so on. And we engage in very um, iterative, in a very iterative type of style of work where we quickly prototype something. Like in the case of Alter Ego, it looked pretty ridiculous. Um, uh, the way it was glued together <laughs> with uh, some cardboard and, and other things that we could find in the lab. But we create these very early prototypes that are very clunky, don't work very well, but those can those make a certain future more uh, visible. They, they envision sort of what is possible or make it more concrete. And then we invite a lot of feedback from all of these visitors, from all of these people with different backgrounds, and they see opportunities for, oh, maybe I would use it this way, or maybe it's really exciting in that um, application domain, or um, I see this or that uh, problem with the technology. So that's really the the technique uh, that we pursue, attract a very diverse team, of highly creative entrepreneurial people, but from very different backgrounds, and engage in a lot of team um, innovation and do very iterative types of design, um, making prototyping and then uh, getting feedback from really everyone, um, not just these companies that come and visit, but uh, our, our own families and, of course, the target users uh, of the uh, technologies that we built. So that's um, 
yeah, the, the secret sauce, so to speak, or the, the secret to um, how uh, Media Lab innovation works. Take us back maybe to 2012 or something. Uh, and in the lab, you have two bright uh, people. Mm-hmm. One is Roni Kubat, who also had a background from the computer science and AI lab at, mm-hmm. at MIT, but then had already come over to, to study uh, you know, with you. And then you had Natan Linder, who had industry background and had been already head of a Samsung lab in Israel. Mm-hmm. Now the two of them show up mm-hmm. doing their uh, masters, I guess, and then uh, ultimately PhDs, but masters, I guess, in this context. And they start developing something. Can you tell mm-hmm. me a little bit of what those early days, little early conversations you had with them about what each of them were doing and, mm-hmm. and your reflections on to, to what extent some of the work, the early work they did with you, how that transpired into mm-hmm. what now, right? 2014, I believe, turned into Tulip Interfaces. Mm-hmm. And, and now in 2021, uh, you know, went on the Gartner calendar essentially as a uh you know as a manufacturing execution mm-hmm. system and and more broadly uh you know aspirationally is a frontline operations platform that can transform the way that uh workers are uh, working at the front lines mm-hmm. augmenting them and 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 really changing manufacturing as we know it today with a kind of a no code mm-hmm. system so this was like fast forward 20, uh, you know, 2012 to 2021. Where were they back then? What was it that you taught them specifically? Mm-hmm. What were they working on? And, and how did you work together? Yeah. What motivated this work um, initially was this whole realization uh, in 2012 that we were living in these two parallel worlds, um, we all, and, and it's still very much the case, we live in the physical world. And then there's this whole digital world with information about all the things around us in the physical world uh, that we are engaged in and so on, the people we're meeting with and so on. And we realized that, uh, or we were frustrated really, that these um, two types of experiences were not connected. For example, if I pick up a book, Um, I can scan, I can look at the pages, the beautiful pictures in the book, uh, read the back cover to see what people have to say about it. But ideally, at that moment, I would also have access to the rating on Amazon and what others have said about that book or not, because that's extremely relevant at that moment when I'm considering whether that book may be... um, an interesting book for me to read. So we were very um, interested in creating uh, sort of experiences that are more integrated, where our physical lives are more integrated with the digital information that exists about um, everything around us and all of our actions and and, um, experiences. So we experimented with different types of augmented reality systems to bridge that gap and to make the digital information and services available in the physical world. So that's really where um, the work that uh, Nathan and and Ronnie um, did and what led to Tulip, where that started. Um, They were experimenting with um, 
building uh, uh, systems that have an integrated camera and projector so that the machine can see what is happening and can project relevant information onto whatever um, it is looking at um, so that people can get, for example, uh, relevant uh, reviews when they're looking at a uh, um, at, at a product that they want to buy. So we actually developed all sorts of prototypes to illustrate this vision of this integrated um, uh, sort of augmented reality. Uh, we built, uh, uh, for example, at that time, um, together with Intel, we built uh, an example of a store that has the two integrated, that has physical products. Uh, it, it, I believe it was cameras. And then uh, there was a projector system that would recognize what camera you were looking at or, or picking up, and it would give you additional information about it. And so uh, it would point out the features by actually pointing at the different buttons on the camera and what was so special about them, etc. cetera. Um, we also built uh, an augmented uh, uh, desk for um a learning context for an educational context. And in all of these cases, we worked with partners, for example, for the education context to think about how this augmented reality could be used um, in the context of schools. We worked with Pearson, uh, who's the leading developer, of course, of uh, course books and class books, uh, uh, school books and so on. Um, we then also worked with Steelcase on how this augmented reality uh, technology could be used on the manufacturing floor. How could it help people in real time by giving them feedback about what they were doing, maybe uh, giving them real-time instructions projected onto their workspace or maybe alerting them that something wasn't done right or a step was forgotten and so on. And uh, that work with Steelcase ultimately then, and with some other uh, uh, sponsors as well, like uh, GSK, for example, um, which does drug development, all of that led to um, the spin-off to Tulip being created as uh, yeah, a company that can really um, sort of realize that whole vision of an augmented uh, manufacturing place where... Um, you can have real-time um, uh, information uh, provided, but you can also track the whole um, uh, uh, manufacturing floor in real-time and have very detailed data and analytics and intelligence about um, which steps may cause more errors or where most uh, where uh, which steps in the process say take a lot of time and so on. So you have this real-time insight also into the manufacturing floor uh, that we've never had before. It's so. it's fascinating that you picked this, uh, you know, this uh, that they picked this example and that you uh, are kind of explaining it now because I, I want to give people the right sense of what it takes to produce a innovation that turns into a commercial mm -hmm. true product because... I saw a version of the product you are explaining now in 2014 in the fall when I was at the startup exchange and I was one of the first in their in their then tulip lab with you know seven employees and the but 
that demo of something that had a camera and a sensor only this spring turned into what Tulip called their vision mm-hmm. product. And it's only now coming to market. So here is arguably some of the brightest people working with you, uh, a very uh, illust- you know, a very experienced mentor working from 2012 mm-hmm. to a demo in 2014. But, but then they had to take all kinds of other things to market first. And only now mm-hmm. in 2021 is this coming out. Yeah. I find that an incredible timeline and path. Yeah, it's it's surprising to me as well, although I have seen it happen multiple times. Um, we think that technology moves really fast, but then in practice for an invention like this to ultimately make a difference in the real world typically takes 10 years or more Um I have had that experience um, with other technologies that we've invented in the past, actually. And an earlier um, uh, technology that we invented in our lab was recommendation systems that, uh, say, recommend a book to you because you also like these other books or because people who also liked uh, the books that you buy also bought this book um, that is being recommended to you. We invented that technology in 94 (laughs) when browsers were just available. And um, we were talking a lot to um, Media Lab member companies about how exciting this would be and how it would personalize the whole online experience if you could get these recommendations from other people like you. and, And there was excitement among the member companies, but um, they were at that time saying, well, we're not sure that people are ultimately going to feel comfortable giving their credit card over the internet to buy something. So it, this seems very exciting and it's a great vision, but we don't see this happening. That was companies (laughs) like Blockbuster (laughs) and other companies that now are bankrupt maybe because they didn't take this seriously enough. But so because these larger companies were sort of a little bit skeptical about this whole vision that we were portraying of online commerce and recommendations and so on. We started a company ourselves called Firefly um, in 94 um, and ultimately sold it to Microsoft actually in 98. But we were just way too far ahead. We were too early and, um, Most people weren't ready to buy things online. Most companies weren't ready to partner with us. Um, And we actually sold a company in 98 at a time when briefly everybody thought that internet commerce was was dead, was not going to take off. Um, A year later, our company (laughs) would be 10 times as much or worth 10 times as uh, as much as what we sold it for. Uh, So unfortunately, we sold it at at the wrong time when there was a lot of pessimism about, um, and it's hard to believe that now, (laughs) especially now during COVID that everybody uh, pretty much buys everything online. Um, But yeah, back then in 98, that was not at all clear and we were too early basically. So in my experience, it always takes at least 10 to 15 years, even for a technology that seems ready to be deployed uh, to ultimately make a difference in um, the real world. 
Well, the the digitalization of physical infrastructure, like you started with, is is mm-hmm. a different thing, though, and even more complicated mm-hmm. than the trust to buy something online, which I guess it, it sort of is vaguely related to, like you have to trust that something abstract is actually going to have a consequence. But uh, Roni and Natan told me that they even, you know, basically slept over in factories and like l- studied yeah. these workers for mm-hmm. days and weeks on end. And and I guess Tulip is still studying yeah. workers. It's not immediately obvious what is a contribution on the factory floor, is it? I mean, it's not as easy as to yeah. say we have this fancy digital thing that mm-hmm. we're going to give you. Mm-hmm. Well, why is it so much more complicated? Well, I, yeah, I think it's it's always <laughs> complicated and it is important that um, to really understand the context, the actual context of where some technology is going to have to fit in. I remember very well when uh, Bronnie and, and um, uh, Natan were visiting the factories and uh, they would come back with amazing stories about the to our minds, very primitive ways in which <laughs> all of uh, uh, everything was being done with, at that time, um, still a lot of use of paper records, for example, um, uh, for collecting information. So it's um, it, it, it was a, a big gap that had to be <laughs> uh, bridged, really, between sort of the vision that we had of this totally connected manufacturing place um, with all of this real-time data, real-time instructions and advice, being able to also modify things and edit uh, um, uh, sort of this whole digital layer or digital support system um, in real time by the people on the floor and the managers and so on. Um, There was really a big gap from that reality of paper-based systems um, in a very low-tech uh, context to sort of that uh, vision that we had of this smart manufacturing floor. And how far are we getting with this? And, and how quickly will it go now? Do, would you say mm-hmm. that this has been the, a decade of exploration and a lot of these things have been sorted out? Or would you say, you know, some quick wins, uh, you know, uh, happened and then some of the slower things, you know, mm-hmm. they are just slow. Like uh, any kind of technology will mm-hmm. take will take the time it takes to fully understand how you can contribute. I mean, I guess I'm asking this in the context of another technology that a lot of people are putting a lot of hope in these days, especially perhaps during COVID, you know, robotics in mm-hmm. the, on the manufacturing floor um, and, the, and maybe the merging of mm-hmm. AI or machine learning and robotics. How, how do you see these things? How disruptive mm-hmm. will any kind of digital device or software system or augmented system for that should benefit workers, uh, how disruptive can these devices and systems become? And have we kind of hit some sort of momentum or is this mm-hmm. still going to be kind of case by case basis and, and the hype mm-hmm. is just not going to be true in this domain? Yeah, I think we have to accept that that progress necessarily is slow. (laughs) I mean, I think the potential is there, but in my experience, 
really sort of reaching that potential and, and learning a lot of, uh, or involves learning a lot of hard lessons along the way. Uh, but progress is being made. It's just not as quick as we would like it to be. Um, and I think the same will be true for um, sort of this uh, vision of smart manufacturing, um, uh, including the use of robotics, which is even more challenging than uh, because you have moving <laughs> moving parts, which means that thing, things break down quicker and that there's also more safety constraints and so on as well. Um, but yeah, I, I, um, progress will continue to be made and I think it's very important for companies to engage with all of these new technologies and to do experiments and to start integrating some of these new technologies um, in their workplace or you end up like the blockbuster <laughs> example that I gave earlier where they said well, <laughs> we'll, we'll deal with this later or when it becomes more important and then they were bankrupt yeah Hmm. Well, it strikes me that you're not going to give me timelines because it depends on so many things. But if you look at the future of, I guess, cognitive enhancement more mm -hmm. generally, or certainly these immersive and sometimes wearable systems mm -hmm. that you have been building for 30 years, you, you, are, you have a, an interesting role because you are, of course, inspiring a lot of hype just because mm -hmm. the products you build are so fascinating and they seem so simple. Mm -hmm. But you are also combining this with being very careful about the predictions that are surrounding it. Um, yeah. So tell me a little bit about what, what the future holds for these things. I mean, are we to expect more of these uh, fascinating devices uh, coming on market? Or are you exploring a lot more of those in your lab right now? Oh, yeah. Or, you know, what, where is where, where is it uh, at at the moment, you know, on the experimental stage? Mm -hmm. There's never a shortage of interesting new ideas for us to work on. Um, I always have way too many uh, or more than I have students to uh, work on them. <laughs> but uh, one area that we are exploring in the lab right now um, is we want to go beyond systems that help people with providing information. The focus on uh, digital technologies um, whether it is laptop or, or watches or, or smartphones, has been primarily on, well, communication and also the system giving you information. And with um, the work that we talked about so far today, uh, the focus was on giving them that information integrated into whatever they are doing so that they don't sort of have to uh, try to juggle between the physical and then the digital information that may be relevant to whatever physical stuff uh, somebody is doing. But we try, we're trying now to go beyond um, systems that give you information and are interested in looking at how uh, digital devices can help people with issues such as attention, uh, motivation, uh, memory, um, uh, learning, uh, grit even, creativity, um, we think that given that all of us are now sort of forever after, we're, we're cyborgs. We always have technology with us. We have our smartphone never far away from our body. Many of us wear a smart, uh, a smart watch as well. And so we have this opportunity now 
to use these systems to help people with a lot more than just giving them access to information. These systems uh, increasingly have sensors uh, integrated that can sense what the person is doing, where they are, maybe even what their heart rate is, um, and um, whether they are uh, maybe a little bit anxious at the moment or not, or maybe the opposite. Maybe they're too sleepy, they're not engaged. So increasingly, systems will have a better sense like that of the state of a person the cognitive state of a person and will help the person with um, being in the state that they want to be in. For example, we've been building glasses that have uh, built-in sensors for uh, sensing brainwave activity as well as for sensing eye movements. And uh, that pair of glasses, uh, it's called the Attentive U project uh, can actually give you feedback uh, about your own attention level. Um, are you being highly attentive right now or are you being distracted? Are you fatigued and so on? And we use that information uh, to help a person uh, to be aware of uh, the fact maybe that a, a driver of a truck should be uh, taking a break because they're too fatigued or um, it, it can help a person who's uh, listening to a lecture be more attentive because the system can tell them when their attention is waning. So um, we think that this is an exciting new direction uh, to go into, really go beyond just giving a person information about whatever job they're doing or whatever they're working on or, or thinking about or, or doing but going beyond that and helping them with those skills that are really important for being successful in life um, that all of us struggle with and that all of us uh, keep, keep having to work on. Fascinating. That's fascinating. I, I want to I wanna ask you, what is your goal with all of these activities mm -hmm. because you are an innovator, but innovators are always motivated. Good innovators are always yeah. motivated by something. What What is it ultimately yeah. that you have been trying to achieve over these years? I really want to help people. <laughs> um, I did study computer science and artificial intelligence, but my goal is not to create smarter, more capable machines or algorithms. I ultimately want to help people with um, machines, with AI. I want to enable them to live their best lives and to grow um, and learn and ultimately become the person that they would like to be. So you, you have a very optimistic view on a future that a lot of people are scared about right now. Some people might be scared about AI. They might be scared about what they're seeing around them. How, how do you maintain this very optimistic vision? Mm -hmm. Is it because you feel like you have agency? You, 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 know, you get clever students come in and work on mm -hmm. your ideas. I guess I'm just trying to say that Usually I would, I would ask people, you know, what, what is the best way to kind of stay up to date and, and mm -hmm. kind of model what you're doing? And the obvious thing would be they should try and come and apply and, and come to your lab. Now, some people <laughs> will achieve that, not very many, right? It's a small, small space, so there's limits. Usually one the other advice would be to, 
to pay to get to the media lab and come become a corporate uh, mm-hmm. sponsor. That seems to be another avenue. Mm-hmm. But do you have any other less obvious ways that people can emanate some mm-hmm. of this spirit that I think you because you're sharing an entire approach to how to mm-hmm. understand technology, how to develop technology, mm-hmm. but also a vision of what technology should be doing for us. So it's almost, mm-hmm. you, you kind of have a philosophy. You, you told me a philosophy with a small p mm-hmm. about uh, technology. Mm-hmm. How should people try to learn more about it, mm-hmm. engage with that kind of philosophy? Yeah, I, I do think it is the role of the Media Lab to, to be optimis- optimistic, really, and to see the potential of emerging technologies in improving people's lives. That is really sort of our um, unique um, focus among all um, sort of uh, university research laboratories. We look at emerging technologies and we try to be uh, positive thinkers or optimistic thinkers in terms of how those technologies um, can ultimately empower people to improve their own lives, their uh, communities, and their environment, the natural world around them as well. Um, We try not to be naive (laughs) in that quest um, at the same time. And we we are very much aware that uh, all of the powerful technologies that we work on can be abused, can be used in very negative ways as well. But um, I think that that is ultimately not... um, a reason not to engage in in these endeavors. Um, um, basically, we, we try to invent the future that we want to live in, <laughs> or uh, that's that's really what we are working on. And we try to be inclusive in that process by again not just involving, say, the students and and researchers in the lab, but really the target communities like people on a manufacturing floor and how do they want to work with AI and robotics and augmented reality, et cetera. Um, so we, we, in, um, we basically involve the, the um, sort of target users, uh, the um, companies that are uh, involved in a particular sector and so on as well. And, um, so, yeah, I think that there's many opportunities really for people to be involved. I would also like to say that, especially now with COVID, um, all laboratories um, have become much more open. And, for example, lecture series, uh, showcases, op- uh, virtual open houses and so on, um, they, there's no limits to how many people can attend because it's all online anyway uh, these days. So it's actually nice that that has opened up uh, the laboratory more and makes it possible for more people to get involved, to uh, be part of conversations, to listen to talks, see demonstrations, and so on. That's that's uh, fascinating, and I think just in in closing, you, you you mentioned this acronym that's typically used in psychological studies, like w- the weird acronym Western educated, industrialized, rich, and democratic. And it seems to me that 
that is a very, very specific user group, but it is far from the only one. So uh, maybe as in closing, like my last question would be how, how does one, you know, because, you know, other, others might be developing technology on other continents or other places. Mm-hmm. How do you avoid this bias of kind of like jumping into a lane that mm-hmm. other people have created that is this lane? Mm-hmm. You know, it's maybe demos from Western labs, it is use cases in highly industrialized factories or whatever it is, or created for the New York, uh, you know, Fifth Avenue consumer market. Those are not the only technologies we should be building. So uh, how do we do it otherwise? (laughs) Yes, I fully agree. And um, meanwhile, today I talked about my work and my work is indeed mostly focused on the Western developed world and and, um, technologies that might be available here. There's a lot of uh, uh, work happening at the Media Lab with other communities, um, uh, both within the United States, less fortunate communities maybe than the ones that my technologies, um, uh, many of my technologies are designed for. Uh, There's a lot of work, for example, with people in Africa, on uh, use of different technologies. So, yeah, we, we try to, I mean, we, we cannot develop technologies for everyone, <laughs> um, but uh, we, we try to be explicit about who some technologies are designed for and not assume that they would generally be use, uh, usable. And we try to work with the target communities that they are designed for. And definitely we're not, exclusively working with um, uh, or designing technologies for the Western richer world. Mm -hmm. Well, thank you so much, Patty. This has been uh, very enlightening. It turns out that advanced technology is complicated and slower, but perhaps more sustainable when it's developed that way. And that's an interesting lesson. Thank you so much. Thank you. It was a pleasure. You have just listened to episode 24 of the Augmented Podcast with host Trun Arne Unheim. The topic was Emerging Interfaces for Human Augmentation, and our guest was Patty Mays, professor at the MIT Media Lab. In this conversation, we talked about augmenting people instead of using or making smart machines, enabling people to perform better through fluid, interactive, immersive, and wearable systems that are easy to use, developing new form factors, and much more. My takeaway is that augmenting people is far more complex than developing a technology or even experimenting with form factors. Instead, there's a whole process to exploring what humans are all about, discovering opportunities for augmentation and tweaking it in dialogue with users. The Media Lab's approach is work-intensive, but when new products make it out of there, they tend to extend a human function as opposed to becoming just a new gadget. Thanks for listening. If you liked the show, subscribe at augmentedpodcast.co or in your preferred podcast player and rate us with five stars. If you liked this episode, you might also like episode 19, Machine Learning and Manufacturing, episode 7, Work of the Future, or episode 13, Get Manufacturing Superpowers. Augmented. Industrial Conversations.